Good evening. Welcome to our Monday Thursday service of worship here at First Church in New Knoxville. We're so glad you've decided to take time out this Holy Week to come and remember this part of uh, the week of leading up to the cross and, of course, the resurrection of Christ. I have little in terms of announcements to share with you this evening. I do want to invite you to our Good Friday service, which is happening here in the sanctuary tomorrow night at 730. That is a joint service with the United Methodist Church here in New Knoxville. And we're certainly looking forward to worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we remember the cross of Christ. And of course, on Sunday morning, we invite you to our Easter services here at First Church, including our sunrise service at 7 a.m. in the the ministry center. There's Easter breakfast served at 8 a.m. down in the social room and our normal celebration service here for Easter Sunday in the sanctuary at 9 o'clock. We also have Sunday school that day for all ages or for children, so we invite you young families to participate in Sunday school as usual as well. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father God, we thank you for this time where we get to gather here and remember um, the Maundy Thursday evening, the night, Lord Jesus, when you gathered with your disciples in the upper room and you instituted the Lord's Supper, the night that you washed your disciples' feet and, and demonstrated what a servant's attitude should be. The night also that you spent in the garden praying, knowing what was to come and spending your last moments before that mob arrived, Lord, in prayer to your heavenly father. And of course, the night when you were betrayed, setting into motion the events that would lead to your crucifixion. Lord, as we gather here this evening, help us to have a servant heart like yours. We ask that you would help us to grasp the significance of the Lord's Supper and may we, Lord, honor you with our heart, with our, in our words, and our deeds this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This time, if you're able, I invite you to stand and, as we read our call to worship from Psalm 116. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. What shall I return to the Lord? For all his goodness to me, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. I invite you to remain standing as we sing hymn number 493, It Is Well With My Soul.
may be seated. For our scripture reading, I invite Connie Ford. The reading is from Luke 22, verses 7 through 34. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. You have a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Thank you, Connie. Let's pray together again. Father, as we hear your word read here tonight, reminding us of the events that took place on that first Monday, Thursday, some 2,000 years ago. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us, to open our hearts and minds, and for you to provide words for me to speak this evening. Words of truth, words of encouragement, and of course, words of hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So you know, if you've attended a Maundy Thursday service here before, you know that in a few moments we are going to take time to share in the Lord's Supper here this evening. In fact, most Monday Thursday services that you have maybe attended, maybe at other churches and other places, uh, focus on the Lord's Supper. And the reason for that is because this is the night that we remember Jesus instituting that meal among his disciples. 
Now, there's a backdrop you notice here as Connie read the verses. The backdrop for all of this is, of course, the Passover. The Jewish holiday that dates all the way back to the Exodus, right? When God rescued his people from Egypt. On that first Passover night, they were instructed to slaughter a lamb and to bake unleavened bread and cook this lamb with bitter herbs. And that meal was carried on, instituted among God's people as a way to remember God's salvation from Egypt out of slavery. But Jesus is doing something a little different here, right? He's taking that that theological backdrop of the Passover, but applying a whole new layer of meaning to it because he knows what's about to happen. That within 24 hours, Jesus is going to die on the cross. And so Jesus imbues this Passover meal with, with added significance in what we now what we now call the Lord's Supper to teach his disciples that he loves them and that he will sacrifice his life to rescue them from their sins and from the enemy. And so let's take a look here about what what Passover, what this um, Lord's Supper teaches us about who Jesus is and who we are in relation to him. First of all, we need to notice that Jesus loves us while we were still sinners. If you were to look at this seen in the gospel of John, there's an added element that isn't here in Luke's gospel or Matthew or Mark's for that matter. In John's gospel, during the, during this last supper, Jesus kneels down and washes his disciples feet. Now that job was left for the lowest of low servants, right? Because that was the last thing anybody wanted to do was, was bow down and clean someone's feet. Now, most people in that day, if they wore shoes at all, wore open-toed sandals, right? And they were walking around in dusty, dirty streets filled with all sorts of refuse. And so feet were just filthy and disgusting. And so that job was left to the lowest of low servants. Yet Jesus was the one who knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. But think about who was there at the table with Jesus, right? It wasn't just a few, I mean, it was, it was just that closed group, right? The, the 12 of them. But among, that 12, among the 12 of them was Judas Iscariot, right? Someone who had already set into motion the events that would lead to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. And yes, Jesus knelt down and washed his feet too. But Judas wasn't the only one who would betray Jesus that night and in the hours, early hours of the next day. Peter was also going to betray Jesus just in a different way. Peter, the leader of the disciples, yet Jesus knew, right, that Peter would disown him out of fear. Peter thought that he would follow Jesus to jail and even to death. But that very night, Peter would deny Jesus three times. You see, Jesus still loved them. He still served them, even though he knew that they were going to betray him. And that in one way or another, all the disciples would scatter in the hours to come. Yet Jesus still served them and loved them. And he does the same for us as well. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or to put it another way, in Colossians chapter 1, he said, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies 
in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, Jesus loved us while we were still sinners too. Right? We didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn his love. Yet at this Last Supper, he, he is, he's taking the time to teach his disciples what he's about to do for them and by extension for all of us as well. See, Jesus rescues us out of our sin and he doesn't wait for us to rescue ourselves. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. No, as, as Psalm 40 says, he reaches down and lifts all the ground. So during this meal, Jesus takes the time to, to take these two elements, right? The bread and the cup and imbue the significance, this added significance to them. Jesus says the bread is his own body, which is broken for us, broken for us on the cross. And the cup represents his blood shed for us on the cross. And so every time we consume these elements, right, they're physical signifiers of God's grace and mercy. And in a very real way, Christ meets us, right, in that moment and strengthens us spiritually. We're reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus, right? He said, do this in remembrance of me, his body broken, his blood shed. But he also institutes a, a forward, forward-pointing sign, right? He points us to the future glory of being united with Christ when his kingdom comes. He reminds the disciples that he won't eat this bread and drink this wine until he comes into his kingdom, right? When we enter into Christ's kingdom, when we go to be with him in glory, right, we will share in a banquet. We will share in a, in a feast, right? The wedding supper of the lamb. And so not only does communion point us backward to what Christ did for us on the cross, it also points us forward to what Christ will do for us when we go to be with him. And every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're reminded that Christ laid down his life for us poor and needy sinners. Jesus says that his body is broken and his blood is shed for you. As I was reading that again, this passage again this week, these very familiar words, that's the phrase that stuck out to me. When Jesus was instituting uh, this meal, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Right? Not just for people in general, right? but for you. Right? There's a very personal aspect to this sacrifice. Jesus didn't die for people in a, in a general sense. When he died, he died with you on his mind. Think about that. As he hung on that cross, he did it for you and for me. So this, these elements remind us that Jesus loves us even while we're still sinners. But we notice here also in the scene that there's another important thing that Jesus highlights for, for Peter and the disciples and by extension for all of us as well. And it's that Satan wants to destroy us. All right, Jesus tells Peter that Satan desires to sift all the disciples like wheat. Right, I've never sifted wheat before, but when I was a kid, we had this uh, is sieve, the right word, right? A little screen. And I used to like to put dirt through there. I go in the backyard and find dirt or sand, and I'd like to put it in the screen and shake it out to see what, what, I, what I could find. And if you've never done it before, right, you can put that dirt in there, 
and maybe some of the smaller pieces will fall through. But in order to really sift that dirt, or by extension sift the wheat, you need to shake it. And you need to violently shake it, right? And sometimes you need to take those clumps and push them down and break them apart in order for them to fit through. Right? That's the image that Jesus is giving Peter and the disciples. He says, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He desires to shake you violently, separating the chaff from the wheat. Right? Satan wants to tempt the disciples. He wants to tempt us into spiritual ruin. And Satan is asking to sift the disciples, hoping, here's his hope, right? He hopes that there will be nothing left when he's done. He hopes that the sifting will be so violent, so powerful, that when, when he's done, there's nothing left. Scripture teaches us that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. You see, Satan hoped that the arrest the public humiliation, the death of Jesus would be enough to put an end to God's plan. He hopes to kill the shepherd and by doing so, scatter the disciples like sheep. But there's something else important to note here. And it's in Jesus' words, right? He says, Satan has asked to sift you all like wheat. It's important to note that Satan must ask permission to do this. Right? He's not all-powerful. He can only do what God allows him to do. Right? Think of the scene in Job 1 as, as he goes before God and asks permission right, to take all of Job's possessions and his family and everything away from him. And eventually Job's very health. Right? He hoped that by taking those things from Job, that Job would curse God, that, that Job would abandon his faith, and that Satan would prove that the only reason that Job honored God was because of the things that God had blessed him with. So Satan must ask permission to sift the disciples, to sift us like wheat. And so the natural question then is, why would God allow such a thing to happen? Why would he allow any of us to experience that sort of sifting? I believe Jesus gives Satan permission because Jesus knows that the sifting will ultimately serve a higher purpose. Satan desires to destroy them. He desires to sift them to the point there that nothing will be left. But Jesus knows that sifting will remove the chaff so that what is good and valuable will remain. See, that's what I was looking for when I was sifting the dirt in my backyard was I was hoping to find something in there that was valuable, right? I used to, try, I used to collect rocks and I, I like to find ones that were unique or differently colored. And so by sifting out the dirt, I was hoping to find that valuable rock or at least valuable to me, right? In the dirt. And that's why God allows us to experience it as well, because he knows that when we are sifted, when we are challenged, when we go through hardships, it allows what is unimportant to wash away so that what is good and valuable will remain. You see, God is sovereign over all things. Yes, even over the sifting, even over our hardships. You may not understand why you're being sifted and you may not see any good in it at all. And you may question where God is in all of it. But as Christians, we believe that God is good. That he is faithful, that he will never leave or abandon his people. And yes, that God is in control. And so we cling to those promises, especially when they're the hardest to believe. 
And I believe the Last Supper, right, communion, these elements that we're about to share in are physical reminders of that promise, right, that God is in control, that he is sovereign. And every time we take it, it's, a, it's another reminder to strengthen us and to put our hope in God, no matter what we may be facing in this world. And the third thing that's important for us to remember as we take communion is that Jesus intercedes for us and rescues us from our sin. Remember Peter and Judas, right? What's, the, what's one of the main differences between their stories and how they turned out? Right? Peter repents of his sin and returns to Jesus. Later that night, after denying Christ three times in the courtyard, when that third one happens, he locks eyes with Jesus in that rooster crows. And in that moment, in Luke, later in Luke chapter 22, it says that Peter wept bitterly and ran outside. I believe that that wept bitterly calls to mind repentance and godly sorrow. And we know, of course, that that Jesus restores Peter and Peter goes on to do amazing things for God. You see, one of Satan's favorite weapons is, is guilt and shame. When a person fails, he wants, he wants to use our guilt and use our shame to beat us down even further. It's the difference between, I think there's a difference between condemnation on one hand and conviction on the other. See, Satan likes to condemn us away from God and our shame. Satan likes to tell us we're no good. We messed up again. God can't possibly love you anymore. Conviction, on the other hand, are feelings of guilt that drive us to God in repentance. Notice that they're both feelings of guilt. It's just, it's just about what we do with them and what direction they push us in. Satan wants to drive a wedge between us and God to drive us further away from him. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's not to make us feel shame, but it's to bring us back to God in repentance and confession. Remember Paul's words in Romans 8.1. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That when we put our trust and our hope and our faith in him, Right? There is no more condemnation anymore because our sin has been dealt with. When Peter denied Jesus the third time and heard the rooster crow, he remembered, that Je- remembered what Jesus had said. He was convicted of sin and eventually repented. And notice here, when, when Jesus says he's praying for Peter, he says, when you return, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He doesn't say if you return. He says when. When you return, he knew that Peter would falter, but he also knew that Peter would repent. So Jesus prays that Peter's faith would not fail. And that's the key. You see, Jesus was interceding for Peter and for the disciples. His faith would falter out of fear, but it did not fail. And you think that's great. Well, Jesus was praying for Peter. What about me? (laughs) Right? What about us? Scripture says that Jesus is praying for us too. You know that? That even now Jesus is interceding for us. In Romans 8:34, it says, When um, Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Or in Hebrews 7:25, it says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. See, 
Christ is, is right now living and interceding for us at the right hand of God. That he is praying for us just like he prayed for Peter. And that gives us hope. You see, the key to it all is repentance. To confess our sin, to turn away from it, and to return to Jesus. Right? And that's not just a one-time act. It's an ongoing attitude. When you guys came into the church tonight, um, hopefully at the entrances you saw that there were trays with, with nails in them. I have one right here. Um, hopefully you grabbed one. If you did not grab one, there are some extras back by the info center over there. Or you can grab one at the, at the entrances as well. See, I, I want us to do something a little different tonight. And like I said, we're going to take communion here together. And, and when we do so, I'm going to invite you forward. We'll, we'll take communion at the altar just like we do on Sunday mornings. But when you come forward, I want you to bring that nail with you. And you see there's a cross and a box. This nail is a, is a physical reminder of our need to confess. See, Jesus was nailed to the cross through his hands and through his feet. But it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on that cross. It was his love for us and his desire to rescue us from our sin that held him there. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he took our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, your sins were nailed there too. And with every strike of that hammer, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He wasn't just forgiving the soldiers who were physically nailing him to the cross. I believe Jesus was forgiving all of us because it was our sin that held him there. Like I said, hopefully you all have a nail. Even if you don't have a nail, it's just a simple physical reminder of our need to confess and repent. And so when we come forward for communion, I invite you to bring that nail with you and place it in the basket of the cross. We're going to have time to have a time of prayer, of confession and leading up to it. But, but when you take that nail and place it in the basket, it's a reminder that God has rescued you from your sin, that your sins have been nailed to the cross and that you bear them no more. And that you can experience grace and forgiveness and love in Christ. And after placing that nail in the basket, we invite you to take the bread and the cup. Again, physical reminders, physical signs of God's grace for us in Christ. That on that cross, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the chance to hear from your word and, and share in, in, in the Lord's Supper here this evening. Lord, I pray that you would instill in us the significance of what these elements mean and what they point to, which is your salvation for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we continue to prepare our hearts for communion, I invite those who are able to stand with us as we sing number 428, I Need Thee Every Hour.
Amen. You may be seated. As I said, we're going to have a time of, of confession. Um, and, and, you know, on services like this, we tend to do that in a little bit more of a formal way. So you notice in your bulletin, there's some opportunities for us to do a little bit of a call and response. Um, first based out of Psalm 116 and then Psalm 51. And so I invite you to pray with me through these scriptures. And after we're done reading the section entitled Corporate Confession, there'll be a time of silence. And at that point, that's an opportunity for you just in the silence of your heart to take time and between you and the Lord and acknowledge the ways that you have fallen short. Again, confession is not meant to, to be something that guilts us into shame and condemnation, but as an opportunity for us to turn back to God, acknowledging our wrong ways, but also acknowledging the hope and the grace and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So I invite you to pray with me. First from Psalm 116. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. So we gather as a community in need of a Savior. We offer our honest confession and faith and trust in our covenant God, knowing that God hears our voice. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me my wisdom in my secret place. Teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I invite you to take time and in silence confess your sins to the Lord. First John 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen. One more time, I invite you to, if you're able, to stand as we sing hymn number 342, Just As I Am.
be seated. So we've talked about already tonight, right? We're about to partake in the Lord's Supper, which is an opportunity for us to remember what God has done for us in Christ. His body, which was broken for us on the cross, his blood, which was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. It's also an opportunity uh, for a couple of you. I said I wouldn't single you out too much, but I do have to acknowledge you. A couple of our confirmation students, Parker and Liam, will be having an opportunity to take communion for the first time here tonight. Traditionally, at First Church, we wait till uh, after confirmation for people to take communion. And so this is an opportunity for them to take communion as well. So when I invite everyone to come forward, I'm going to invite them to come forward first, but I invite all of you to follow along behind them. See, communion, as I said, is an opportunity for us to acknowledge our need for God, right? It reminds us of the sacrifice that Christ has made for us in the past, that, that our sin is a thing of the past, that when we put our faith in Christ, all our sin has been forgiven, has been dealt with on the cross. But it's also an opportunity for us to celebrate in joy and in hope and in thanksgiving because our sins are forgiven, Right? Confession is an opportunity for us to acknowledge our need for God, but it's also an opportunity for us to rejoice because our need has been met in Christ our Savior. And so as we take this bread and we drink this cup, we're reminded of those two realities, of our, of the, of our need for God and that he has met that need for us in Christ. So again, I just want to remind you as you come forward here tonight, we're going we're gonna to invite you to come down the center aisle Um, We usually do the side aisles, but because we're inviting you to take that nail and bring it to the cross as a physical reminder of our of our sins being nailed to the cross, we invite you to come down the center aisle and they'll nail in the basket and then take your communion elements, then return to your pew view via the side aisle. So let's take a moment and let's once again pray to the Lord again in thanksgiving for what he's done for us. Father God, as we come to your table here today, we're reminded that it is your table that you invite us, that, Lord Jesus, you died for us, you loved us even while we were still sinners, that though the enemy would like to sift us like wheat, that he would like to destroy us through the power of your blood and through your sacrifice, we know that sin and the enemy and death itself is conquered, and that, Lord Jesus, you live to intercede for us at the right hand of your Father. And these elements here are reminders of our signs, physical signs, of that spiritual reality that you have saved us and that you have forgiven us. And that as we take these elements to our comfort, we are renewed once again by your grace. And so, Lord God, you've heard our confession tonight. We know that we need you. And we thank you, Lord God, for for saving us from our sins. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As Paul wrote, I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So all you who have received Jesus as your Lord and Messiah, we invite you to take this holy sacrament to your comfort.
Father, we come before you again with grateful and thankful hearts for all that you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the presence of your Holy Spirit. As we take these, once again, as we take these elements to our comfort here this evening, we're just filled with your grace and your love that you would, you have poured out on us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and through the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us now, that you would equip us and empower us to live holy lives that are honoring and pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I have one more um, announcement that I forgot to make at the beginning of the service. Um, There is an offering this evening uh, for the those in need fund. And as we close our service this evening, we are going to invite you to depart in silence after we read Psalm 22 and, and the elders assist in stripping the altar. Um, but if you would like to give towards the those in need fund, the deacons will be at the exits um, and you can give as you exit the sanctuary this evening. So again, if you've been a part of our Monday Thursday services in the past, you know um, how we how we traditionally end our service. And that is through reading of Psalm 22 and removing the decorative elements from the altar. Psalm 22 is significant because it's this psalm that Christ quotes for, uh, from the cross. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's from this very psalm that he is quoting. And so as we transition from the celebration of the Lord's Supper of Christ on Good Friday... We, uh, we remove the decorative elements as a, as a physical reminder of the, the direction that Holy Week is taking. That, that after now, after sharing this meal with his disciples, Christ goes into the garden to pray and he knows exactly what is about to happen. In fact, he prays to his father, Lord, if there is any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And just moments later, a crowd of soldiers led by Judas Iscariot come into the garden, arrest Jesus, and that leads to his false his trial, his suffering, and his death on the cross. So that's why we remove these elements from the altar and why we invite you to exit the sanctuary in silence as we reflect on the events of that night. So again, I invite the elders to assist as we hear from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. 
From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. For there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. And I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the end of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. <clears throat> 